Please take your Bibles and let us continue to probe the book of Proverbs, beginning in chapter 14. An expositor looks at the book of Proverbs in a different way. There are not necessarily many paragraphs to which he can give exposition, but a series of truths and verses. So we must almost go based upon the themes. And the expositor must also look at the context of his own life. And when he does, he understands those verses within that context. And the people suffer him, hopefully gladly, as he works from his context. But there is a most significant verse about a most significant theme in this most significant book in a most significant section that is contrasting the righteous with the wicked. It is chapter 14, and it is verse 32. And in the contrast of the wicked with the righteous, there is this simple contrasting uh, parallelism in which the writer states, the wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. The righteous has a refuge in his death. In six months, our family, quite intact, has uh, suffered three losses in the last two weeks. Both dad and mother have passed away and have gone into the presence of God. Little did I realize last Sunday morning that that night at 11.15 to 11.30, somewhere in there, that my mother would just collapse and without a bruise on her body, without extended suffering, pass into glory and be gone. So I look at all week at this verse. The wicked are banished in their calamities, in their wickedness. But the righteous has a refuge in his death. And I want us to look at this subject this morning. I'm titling this, The Refuge of Death. For death really is a refuge when you think about it. Everybody knows that Abraham Lincoln jotted the Gettysburg Address down on a torn piece of envelope at the last minute before he delivered it. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that it was Mark Twain who said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that in World War II, the Air Force chose bombardiers who were colorblind so that they would not be thrown off by the camouflage of the enemy enemy soldiers. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the problem is none of those three statements is true. They're all false but everybody knows it. The fact is, Lincoln worked for weeks on the Gettysburg Address. And the fact is that it was a a newspaper man by the name of Charles Dudley Warner who wrote an editorial and said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Mark Twain had nothing to do with it. And the fact is, experiments have proven that, that bombardiers with normal vision are just as good and are not as deceived by camouflages as our colorblind people. And so that's just hoopla. 
about bombardiers being colorblind. But everybody knows it, but it's not true. And you know, it occurs to me that that's the way it is with death. There are scores of things that we think about death. Somebody has told us about death, and they're not true. We measure everything by the Word of God. In this section, the Scripture gives us some hope. Not many Old Testament passages give us any insight or hope about death, but this one does. Here the writer says that the righteous has a refuge in his death. Originally, that Hebrew word hosa was a word that meant to confide and to get away at a place where you could confide, and it gradually came to mean a place where you could hide. The righteous has a refuge, a place to hide in his death. Now, that doesn't mean that we Christians deny death or we deny the reality of death. When you become a believer, you have a new way of looking at death just as you have a new way of looking at life. For instance, we never look at surrender the same way. Once you've yielded to Jesus as Lord, surrender is a joy. It is a privilege. It is a freeing experience. Submission is never looked at the same way by a believer. Once you know what it means to be submissive to Christ, what's the big deal? I mean, everybody has to be submissive sooner or later, amen? And so what is the big deal? When you come to Christ and you're submissive to Him, it rehearses you for all of the other submissions of life. And so it is in suffering. Once you come to Jesus as Lord, nothing happens to the child of God, but what it passes through the hand of God. And so God takes our suffering and turns it for good. And nobody can suffer quite like the Christian. We know how to suffer because we're under the Lordship of Christ. And everything is changed. Our perspective on things are changed. And the world looks at death as a great loss. But the Christian, not in denial, not in denial of reality, the Christian can rise up and say, death? What's that? It's just a change of space. It's only a change of, of form. It's only a little blip on the screen that passes us from something temporary into something eternal. We don't need to be afraid of death, for death is a refuge. And I'd like to suggest to you six ways from the Word of God in which death is a refuge. First, death is a refuge from judgment. Now, if the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we go to the New Testament to find out what was concealed in the Old Testament, and John 5, 24 tells us one of the refuges of death. And here it is. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment or condemnation, but has passed. Your New International Bible says, I believe, it has crossed over from death unto life. Wow. Imagine, for the believer, for the child of God who stands righteous in Christ, death is a refuge from any judgment at all. 
In death, there's no more probation. In death, there's no more chastening. In death, there's no more accountability. After death, there are no more tests. After death, there are no more rules at camp after death. After death, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. Why? Because when we die, the Bible tells us that we shall be made perfect or complete in a moment, a millisecond of time. Right now, it's very slow. I'm growing in maturing in Christ. But at death, I will immediately be matured for glory. And there'll be no more probation, no more temptation, no more chastening, no more, uh, uh, no more judgment of any kind. Imagine a place where there is no judgment and there are no more examinations and there's no more probation and there are no more rules because you will be made perfect and you will automatically, having been brought to the mature image of Christ, you'll automatically fulfill the will of God in glory. That's what death does. Jesus said it this way, when the Son shall appear, know that you shall appear with Him, and you shall be like Him. And so we'll have a new body that is made perfect and ready for the presence of God. If it were not perfect, we could not stand in the presence of God. Death is a refuge from judgment. This week we went to the funeral of my mother and I encourage my children to take their children. I think it is profitable to help children confront death and learn about death. I'm not one who believes in hiding it from them. And so uh, I spent a lot of time with my beautiful grandchildren, the smartest and the prettiest, of course, in the whole wide world. Now, one of John's children is a sweet, very good-natured, compliant Honey of a thing, just like the court's nature, and uh, very easy to get along with. That's Emily. Now, Meredith is a different ballgame. She is a strong-willed, do-it-my-way child, obstinate, got to be told five times, disciplined about. I averaged 11 times an hour, I counted, during the three days we were together. She's got to be told no, her hand has to be slapped, or she has to be corrected, or she has to be rescued from jumping off the mountain. And she's 18 months old. That's Meredith. And as I was watching the parents devising all these methods of trying to restrict her and restrain her and protect her and defend her and break that will and yet not break the spirit, I thought, isn't that the way after death? Imagine after death, there'll be no more speed limit. There'll be no more taxes. There'll be no more April 15th. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more chastening. There'll be no more suffering. Death is truly a refuge from judgment and condemnation. But secondly, death is a refuge from questions. It's a refuge from questions. Go now with me, if you would, do to one of the most significant passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, Paul tells us that some things are going to fail. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Imagine, there will come a time 
when you won't need preaching anymore. Amen. Imagine there will come a time when you won't need tongues or the spiritual gifts anymore. They will cease. Verse 8, where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. There is coming a time when knowledge will no longer need to be sought. I try to read everything I can get my hands on. I want to know everything I can about everything I can. When I die, I want you to put on my tombstone, curiosity did not kill this cat. Because I want to know everything I can about everything I can. But the fact is that we're full of questions and we have partial knowledge, but death will introduce a complete knowledge. We will know. Listen to verse 9. For we know now in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, our bodies, our mind, our new bodies, our new minds, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, he illustrates this by saying, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. When we become mature, instantly at death, we have no longer any need for childish partial knowledge. We'll have complete perfect knowledge I shall know everything about God that I need to know, and I shall know, like as He knows me, everything about each other. In fact, the Scripture says in verse 12, now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And I am known by God. He knows all about me. Right now, He knows all about me. You don't know all about me. What you know is what you see. And what you see is this outer shell that is a temporary tent in which my soul and spirit live in. But you're not really looking at me. I won't be like this forever. I won't be in this body forever. I'm going to sloth this old body off at death. But what's inside, the person which is using this brain and these hands and these feet, that's the person who's really me. We've got to understand that. And so we know in part we ask questions. Thank God when we get to glory, I won't wonder why you did what you did. I sometimes have a hard time understanding what, why my wife does what she does. And what's even worse, I have a hard time understanding why I do some of the dumb things I do. I don't understand. But when I get to heaven... I'm going to know as I am known. As God knows me, I shall know you. We won't live together as husband and wife or family. There won't be a big C on our foreheads in the glorified bodies. And you'll say, there's a cow, remember? Yeah, I remember Bubba Southern. He used to take the offering. But we will know each other. We will know each other, and we will know it'll be a refuge from questions. Partial knowledge will be made complete. Partial information that we had like when we were a child will now be like when we're an adult. There are things I understand now I didn't understand as a child. And in that same kind of relationship, what we know now on this earth will be nothing compared to what we will know in heaven and how we will understand ourselves. At Mother's funeral this week, three-year-old Emily walked into the church and she looked down at the casket where mother was lying. 
She looked around that little church, the same church where dad was buried, same church where my dad was saved 70 years ago. Her mother had told her that great-grandma had died and gone to heaven. And so when she went in the church and she saw grandma, she looked around at the church and she said, Mama, is this heaven? Because she was told that grandma had gone to heaven and here's grandma in this church. Mama, is this heaven? Questions. I don't understand what all heaven will be like. I don't even understand what all we will do in heaven. I think we will serve God. I think we will worship God. I think we will be like the angels singing glory and giving worth to him and ascribing praise to him. I think that we will recognize the the gates of gems and the gates of pearl, and I think we will recognize the streets of gold, and we will recognize each other, and time will no longer be, and we'll have the time to do what we want. But we'll have refuge from questions. Ira Stanfield wrote a song, uh, I'll ask the questions, uh, but I'll understand them in the by and by. Thirdly, I believe death is a refuge from battle. I believe refuge is, a, is, is death is a refuge. It's a place where we'll be released from battle. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, turn on over. And look at verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality. That's one of Guy Hip's greatest bloopers right there. It was Easter Sunday in the old church. And he read it for me. When this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immorality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, you have no sting. Oh, death, oh, hell, oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The only way death can have power over us is by threatening us because of sin. And if sin is forgiven and the law is fulfilled in Christ, the law cannot accuse us to reveal our sin, and the sin cannot condemn us, to death or eternal separation from God, so the victory has been gained because Christ fulfilled the law and Christ went to the cross for your sins and mine. And then he was buried and then he was raised and the battle with sin is over and the battle with death is over. It's not a battle. It's a graduation into glory. It's a refuge from spiritual warfare. My mother was a very unusual lady when she had her mind. She was uh, grown up in a very godly home. Her daddy worked in the oil fields of southern Illinois, and she had a godly mother, Grandma Vernon, whom I remember best for her delicious rolls melted with hot butter and her jams out of her garden. She could make the best rolls. And she made her own butter and her own jams. And I'm telling you, she made jams that would just melt on top of the melted butter, on top of that hot, that hot uh, roll or biscuit, whatever she'd made. And then she made the best sweetened iced tea you ever put in your mouth. I can tell you that. My mother was 
a good woman. She was saved at an early age. She was a twin. Her twin, Helen, died of diphtheria when she was eight years old. So she was always a twin, divided from a twin because of the diphtheria. In those days, there was nothing much could be done about it. My mother graduated from high school when she was 16. She won her state championship in typing. My mother typed 110 words a minute on a manual typewriter with no errors. 110 words on a manual typewriter, if you please. People would say, oh, you got a good mind from your dad. Don't you underestimate my mother. Dad had the big picture mind. He saw the big things, but mother had the practical mind. She saw the small things. Dad would see a nail in the tire and see how far it would go before it blow out. 27 miles from home at 3 o'clock in the morning, we were sitting by the side of the road. Mother would see the nail and say, Harold, we're not leaving until we get that nail taken care of. That's the kind of mother I had. How do you raise seven children? She was a woman of great grace and encouragement. I had a paper out when I was eight years old, and the papers were so heavy I couldn't carry them all, but she would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning with me, and she would drive those papers and deliver smaller stacks of papers at three points on my route so I wouldn't have to carry them all, then come back and get seven children ready for school, then go work all day, come home, and then fix supper, and then wash and iron till 9 or 10 at night, and then get all those seven children's questions answered, and then go to bed and get up the next morning with as much energy as she had the day before. She was a strong woman. My mother was a great softball player. I can remember when I was a boy, I'd see Mama hitting the softball with a man, and she could hit as far as a man could, and she was fast. She was a great athlete. I'll never forget how she could move. They used to tease her about being a tomboy when she was young. But my mother was a woman of grace. She was married to a man who'd uh, uh, come through their hometown. He was driving a car for an evangelist, and she fell in love with this man with those beautiful blue eyes. And she left home to follow him. And he was a vagabond of sorts until he died. When he was 85, he drove 50,000 miles a year just going from one place to another. And Mama followed him everywhere. She gave new meaning to the word submit. She was the truly submissive wife. And when in hard times, I can remember we were four months behind on our rent and the furnace broke down. And most women would have been afraid to go to the landlord and say, I know we're behind in our rent. I know the water's cut off. I know the furnace is broken, but is there anything you can do? My children are cold. The mother was not afraid to do that, even though she was very humble. I can remember when I tried to wear a shirt the second time to school and she would not let me wear it. I had two shirts and I'd have to wear the other one and she'd wash the other one at night. And uh, she would say, it's never a sin to be poor, but it is a sin to be dirty. You're not wearing that shirt. And it was as simple as that. I didn't wear it. She taught me how to wash dishes when there were no Maytags and no dishwashers. In fact, we'd only just gotten our first Surveil gas refrigerator. Does anybody remember the old gas refrigerators? We had gotten the first one. Dishwasher? We never had dishwashers. Mother had seven dishwashers. 
She taught us how to wash dishes. She said, you'll need to know that someday. And she taught us how to dry dishes. Do you know how to dry dishes? Did you know there's an art to drying dishes? And my mother, in her own godly way, played the piano by ear. My dad played by ear, but he played everything in five flats. I always wondered why I always hit all those dark keys. My mother could sit down and play anything until she got Alzheimer's, and then she wound up playing one song with the left and one with the right. And she had word power. She had word knowledge. She could, my dad was smart with words, but she could whip him anytime she wanted to in Scrabble. She could sit and work crossword puzzles before you'd think of the first word. She was already done. And she had a great heart. She was ready to sing, play, do whatever it took. And I can hear the songs that mom and dad sang to this day. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in thee. He brought me out of the miry clay and a bunch of old hymns that we don't sing anymore but had meaning in that day. And finally, as my mother came down to the end of her race, her mind went bad. It was funny sometimes. It was comical, but it wasn't funny. With her Alzheimer's, she would say and do things that weren't always connected. We put her in an Alzheimer's unit, and she got us aside over to the corner, and she said, you need to know this. Everybody in here is crazy. <laughs> went to see her one day, and she said, they all want me to take them for a ride in Daddy's car. I know Daddy's car is out there, but I just told them I wasn't going to take them for a ride. Now, she hadn't driven in seven years. And she said, now they don't like me, but that's okay. She saw a gray-headed man asleep in the corner, and she went over and shook him and said, now, Mark, wake up. We've got to go. And she made the man get up. He looked at her and said, my name's Bill, not Mark. She thought it was I. Not long before Dad had his stroke and all of this went into motion, I was preaching over in Yadkin County at a church that was having a dedication. They wanted both to go with me. I waited 10 minutes on them. It was nearly late for the service. I let them off at the front door, and I went around to the back to slip in to be with the pastor. And the pastor took me in, set me down on the front row, and then I saw the usher bringing them in the back. And her last years, she hummed. Everywhere she went, she hummed hymns. And this little church, this new church is filled with people, and she walks down the aisle humming, what a friend we have in Jesus, and everybody in the church turned to see who was humming. And then she walked all the way down the front looking for me to see if she could find me, and she found a seat open behind me, and she went over and sat down behind me, and then out loud she reached over and touched my shoulder and said, hi, Marky boy. <laughs> I'm the distinguished speaker for the evening. But it would be all right to hear Marky Boy again, wouldn't it? Well, what a woman she was. But her battles are all over. And they are done. They are done. They're simply done. The fourth thing is a refuge from a worn-out tent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us an interesting picture of that. In 2 Corinthians 5... We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Folks, this body you see is a temporary residence. Don't get too attached to it. 
Don't get too attached to your clothing. Don't get too attached to anything in this world. Don't get too attached to that home you have. Don't get too attached to this body. This is not what is reality. What is reality is what is spiritual and eternal. It's what's inside me. I'm a person. I'm a soul that God breathed. You're a soul that God breathed. And he put you in a body that was made out of dust, and it will go back to dust. Dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. But we'll go on. The old body is like an old tent that is worn out, and it's cast aside. And the new body is like Jesus' glorified body. Uh, Philippians chapter uh, 3 says, it is like the body the Lord Jesus had. And when I die and when you die, this old body will be changed immediately. And we'll put off that old tent and put on a new tent that is built to stand in the heavens. For we who are in this tent, verse 4 says, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. The soul doesn't go without a body, but rather... Clothe that mortality may be swallowed up by life, that the old body, a mortal one, can be swallowed up by a brand new body, an immortal one built for heaven. And the holding is the canister of the soul. It is the, the, uh, the uh, uh, space suit of the spirit for man by which we live on this earth. On Hee Haw one time, old Doc Campbell had a man come to him, and he said, I, I, I broke my arm in two places. And Doc Campbell said, you ought to stay out of those two places. We're living in two places. We're doomed for heaven, and we're on this earth. And on this earth, we have one old tent, and in heaven, we're going to have a new, brand new tent. But death is a refuge, and it's a refuge from the worn out, the pain of this body. I didn't think groaning ever meant much to me when I was 15, and I'd read this passage, in this old body we groan. I said, that's only for old folks, 25 and above. Then it hit 25, and I didn't groan too much at 25. And then it hit 35, and I groaned a little more at 35. Even Michael Jordan groans at 35. Did you know that? And then it hit 45, and I found out what groaning was about. And then it hit 55, and I knew there was a, a whole new significance to groaning in the old tent. And now I'm five years away from 65, and I can't wait to see what groaning is at 65. <laughs> We're temporary residents. We don't live in this old body forever. John Quincy Adams at 80 years of age was asked, well, how is John Quincy Adams today? Thank you for asking, he replied, but John Quincy Adams is quite well. Now, the house in which he is living is rather dilapidated. In fact, it will soon be quite unlivable, and I shall have to move out one day, but now... John Quincy Adams is quite well, thank you. The old dilapidated body will pass off sometime. There is a fifth refuge for the believer. It is a refuge from bondage in Hebrews chapter 2. A refuge from bondage. It is as if the fear of death is the worst of all fears and the mother of all fears. Look at Hebrews 2.14. 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. I'll tell you this, when Christ went to the cross for us, and he died for us, and he was buried for us, he was also raised for us in a new body, a resurrected body. He is appearing in glory at the right hand of the Father for us in that new resurrection body. And when we are raised again, we'll have that new body. Now, he released those of us who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. You and I are in bondage to death. We work so hard to keep everybody alive. And indeed we should. But folks, there's something worse that can happen to you than death. For the believer, death is a refuge from bondage. For some, it's a refuge from the bondage of drugs. It's a refuge from the bondage of materialism. It's a refuge from the bondage of the flesh. It's a refuge from the bondage of fear. The fear of an accident is the fear of death. The fear of violence is fear of death. The fear of being insignificant is the fear that I'll die without having accomplished anything. The fear and the bondage of death are the mother, is the mother of all fear. And when Jesus came out of the grave, he delivered us from all bondage and fear of death. Now, I'm not anxious to die, and I'm not begging God to take me. I'm just not afraid to face it. Because as a Christian, I don't have to be afraid. It's a refuge from bondage. Fear is a terribly hard master. It's a tough master for us to serve. There's one more refuge, and that is a refuge from sin. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation 21, we see that once death comes into our lives, it is the way God gets us out of sin and all the effects of sin, sickness, cancer, all suffering. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and no more pain for all the former things that passed away. See, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We cannot be in God's presence until we're absent from the body. But when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. But when we're present in the body, we have to be absent from the Lord because no sin can stand in God's presence. That's why death is a refuge from sin and all of its effects. No more tears, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more frustration, no more hard times. Jesus talked about death as an ex-hodas. That's the meaning of the word exodus, ex, out from, and hodas, away. In Luke 9, 31, he spoke of his decease, and the word he uses is exodas. It means that death is like a deliverance. Just as God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
God delivers us out of the effects of sin. Just as God delivered Enoch because he was a righteous man and he took him out of a sinful world and he was no more for he was with God. God delivered him. God delivered Elijah and caught him up in a whirlwind and he gave him deliverance. Daniel was in the lion's den. He was threatened by fire and by lions and God delivered him. Death was an exodus for all of them. Jesus faced certain death, but it was a way out through the death, burial, and resurrection. And in every case, each one of those God delivered with an exodus, each one of them was going somewhere. Israel was going to the promised land. Enoch going into the presence of God. Elijah to glory to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration again. Daniel to glory and Jesus to the Father's side. When all is said and done, death is a refuge because it means we're going to face Jesus. We're going to stand with him. It means that death is a refuge because out of the bondage of sin and death and out of the bondage of judgment and questions and battle and away from an old worn-out tent, we leave to stand face to face with the one who made it all possible. And so your loved ones have gone and my loved ones have gone. and We don't have to fear death. But we can look forward to seeing Jesus. Of times the way seems long our trials hard to bear we're tempted to complain to murmur and despair but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away all tears forever Stand with me.